Welcome back to the History of Violence. So today might be a wee bit less historical than usual. Um, we might even venture into a discussion of the future, specifically flying deadly robots. Um, before we start though, I just want to say um, it's been a really long break since the last episode. The pandemic should have given me more time to work on this, but really it was the opposite. The good news though is that we're back now and have some big plans moving forward. Um, from now on I'll be doing interviews with uh, researchers and historians, so you won't just be hearing me drone on and on. The next interview will be with the Victorian Electoral Violence Pro- uh, Project and will tie in with the May elections in the UK. So it's a really great interest and kind of even funny project, so um, it should be great. And we'll be doing monthly episodes from then on. Anyway, um, on with the show. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about um, drones and their use in warfare. The recent conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh and the ongoing use of armed drones throughout the Middle East has brought a lot of attention to this subject. A lot of the focus has been on the ethics of drones, with a lot of people speculating about the ethical implications of um, AI piloted killing missions. Today I want to talk a little bit more about the history of drones, uh, and what we can learn from their recent decisive use in the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia, um, and also what the ethical and strategic implications of this might be. I'll try and keep the Terminator references to a minimum. Drones are sort of as being hyper-modern, even uh, futuristic weapons. However, the use of unmanned aerial vehicles in conflict has actually got a surprisingly long history, going right back to the birth of air travel. Balloons, or more specifically flying lanterns, were used for signalling way back in the Han Dynasty in China over 2,000 years ago. Um, Manned balloons were also used by the French military for observation in the 1700s. But it wasn't until about 1849 that we see the first unmanned aerial bombardment. The Austrian forces besieging Venice used paper hot air balloons to drop bombs with timed fuses, uh, launching some from land and some from the SMS Vulcan, making it kind of the first aircraft carrier. Um, As a strategy, it was not very effective. Um, At least one bomb hit the city, but unpredictable wind meant that most missed their target, and some bombs were even blown back towards the Imperial Navy's own ships. A more effective traditional artillery bombardment was taken up, and Venice eventually surrendered, bringing the First Italian War of Independence to an end. Observation balloons were used during the American Civil War for both map-making and to direct artillery fire, although they were not unmanned and did not involve the use of any ordnance. This was an expensive, uh, arduous and largely ineffectual strategy, and it was abandoned before the end of the war. However, it did inspire at least one civilian observer and aspiring pilot, Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin. Manned observation balloons uh, were used extensively in World War I, but interestingly, the return of unmanned balloons to combat was not only offensive, but also defensive. Um, London in particular saw the use of barrage balloons, which were tethered unmanned balloons used to string steel cables above potential ground targets. This steel net would pose a risk to opposing bombers, therefore countering the recent developments in strategic aerial bombardment. World War II saw the return of unmanned balloons in their more offensive capacity, with Japan using fire balloons to attack the western United States, leading to about six deaths and many fires. The British Army also used small balloons to drop bombs on German cities and to disrupt the electrical grid. But by this time, it wasn't only balloons that were being used in this way. During World War I, the British and US armies both developed and tested, but did not use, a remote-controlled light aircraft. 
The term drone actually comes from the DH-82B Queen Bee, a remote-controlled aircraft used by the British as target practice for the anti-aircraft gunners. So, unmanned aerial warfare isn't exactly an entirely new phenomenon. However, the widespread use of unmanned aerial vehicles, as they're properly known, started with the Vietnam War. Spy planes were used throughout the early Cold War. However, the capture of airmen by communist forces caused major publicity headaches in the West, most notably the capture of CIA pilot Francis Gary Powers. This led to the so-called U-2 incident, a US government cover-up and a prisoner exchange over the Glinke Bridge which connected East and West Germany, inspiring many tired Cold War spy drops. This pushed the US into developing unmanned reconnaissance drones on a wide scale. These drones were mainly used for intelligence gathering, probing the Soviet air defences provided to North Vietnam. They also flew on combat sorties, using strobe lighting and dropping chaff to provide cover for other aircraft. So while they were not used in any directly deadly way, this did mark the first real widespread use of drones as a cost-effective military weapon. Thousands of sorties were flown over the course of the war, and their use was pretty firmly established. But their importance still paled in comparison to other forms of air power. 1982 saw the first really decisive use of drones in large-scale combat, although they were used alongside manned armed aircraft, as in Vietnam. Israel effectively deployed drones to distract the Syrian Air Force during the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, for example by drawing fire from their surface-to-air missiles. The Israeli strategy was incredibly effective, leading this battle to be known as the Valley Turkey Ship, as the Syrian air defences and planes were devastated. This effectively brought the conflict, or at least the interstate part of it, to an end. Some people have even credited this display of technological superiority with helping bring about Glasnost and the eventual fall of the Soviet Union, as the ineffectual performance of Soviet air defences was laid bare. Up to this point in the story of drones, they've been largely used as an addition to other forms of air power, or as a countermeasure of some kind. Although there was some offensive use against civilians in World War II, this was not particularly widespread, and it also didn't radically change the overall military strategy. People were already doing strategic air bombardment, whether by long-distance artillery, manned bomber planes or unmanned balloons. It's only with the war on terror that we enter into a new age of drone warfare, where drones are actually used defensively and independently of other aircraft. This does two things. Firstly, it introduces a host of new strategic and political considerations. Secondly, it raises a number of profound ethical questions and creates considerable controversy. Since World War II in Vietnam, there's been an effort, especially among Western nations, to fight what is known as light footprint warfare. This idea could be an episode on its own, but essentially it means fewer troops, fewer casualties and more remote forms of fighting. The sight of body bags was a major reason for public support for the Vietnam War collapsing, and the technological superiority of Western countries over their adversaries in the post-Cold War era meant that it's strategically feasible and politically desirable to fight wars with less troops and more technology. While the US Army is still massive, warfare, and killing people in particular, is done by a smaller and smaller cohort of troops, highly secretive special forces units and unmanned drones in particular. The drone war is one of the most controversial aspects of the war on terror, throwing up an array of moral and legal issues. Since 9-11, the US has deployed weaponized drones to attack a variety of targets. Some of these are direct military targets in Iraq and Afghanistan. However, they've also been widely used in countries which the US is not at war with against apparent terrorist targets, but without the permission of the country in which the attack takes place. 
So, for example, drone attacks against suspected criminals have taken place across Africa and the Middle East, and particularly in Pakistan. This breaks legal norms around declaring war and targeting civilians. While subsequent uh, US administrations have portrayed this as part of a global war on terror, it's a huge infringement on state sovereignty to launch attacks within another country. Furthermore, the US unilaterally picks targets to attack, with no legal burden of proof that they were either guilty of specific crimes or planning an attack against America or any other country. There are also frequently cases of mistaken identity and high civilian casualties. While proponents of this drone programme portray it as a low-risk, light-footprint, intelligence-led effort to kill known terrorists, it can easily be seen as one country unilaterally bombing another nation with no legal authority in order to extrajudicially assassinate civilians with no oversight and the potential for massive civilian casualties. One case that illustrates these problems is the death of uh, Anwar Nasser al-Awlaki, the first US citizen to be killed by drones. Al-Awlaki was an alleged Al-Qaeda member, although this is disputed, um, who was killed by a drone strike in Yemen in 2011. While the US government portray him as being involved in the planning of terrorist attacks, there's not been any real evidence released to confirm this. He was certainly a well-known and influential Islamist preacher. He was killed alongside Samir Khan, who was a well-known Al-Qaeda propagandist. His son, who had been born in Denver, and was also of course a US citizen, was killed in a similar strike two weeks later. His daughter Nawa was killed in a raid several years later at the age of eight, although not by drones in that case. The US government claims that the killing of Anwar and his son were justified as a way of presenting terrorism, and it's quite possible that they were perhaps guilty of what the US accuses them of. Um, however, it clearly sets a dangerous precedent. Um, murderers are still entitled to due process in the US and every other democracy, no matter how serious the crime they're accused of is. If someone is sentenced to death in America, it happens after investigation, trials, appeals, and there are certainly no civilian casualties from the execution itself. What the US drone program allows is for the president to order the death of someone anywhere in the world, with no due process, no legal defence, and a high chance of collateral damage. Of course, it isn't just drones that do that. The same issues are present even if some other weapon is used, such as a manned aircraft or a special forces team. But certainly, the distance of drones, the sense of remoteness, seems to make this kind of ethically dubious warfare somehow easier. While the US still absolutely leads the world in terms of the number of drones and the usage of them, the technology has recently been diffused to smaller countries. Um, Iran appeared to successfully use drones to attack Saudi oil facilities in 2019, showing that even relatively unsophisticated drone technology can be used for very well-planned and effective attacks. However, the high point in the use of drones came in late 2020, with the renewal of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. The first Nagorno-Karabakh war broke out over an ethnic Armenian enclave within the territory of Azerbaijan in the late 80s and fizzled out again by 1994. Armenia successfully held both Nagorno-Karabakh and some strategic territory around it, leading to an uneasy ceasefire but no political settlement. Since then, the Republic of Arkash, or Nagorno-Karabakh, has existed as a de facto independent state. Meanwhile, both sides built up military front lines around the so-called line of contact. The no-man's land between both sides became, over time, the most militarised zone in Europe, according to Thomas Dewal, with large numbers of troops and installations. Meanwhile, both sides built up their militaries, with Azerbaijan in particular spending a huge amount of money, 
While there was periodic violence around the border, war only finally re-erupted in late 2020. And this time, drones would be vital for Azerbaijan as it tried to avenge its earlier loss. Azerbaijan purchased its drone fleet, including people to man the drones, from Israel and Turkey. While the Armenian forces were well dug in with over 20 years manning these positions, the unexpectedly wide-ranging use of drones allowed Azerbaijan to bypass their radars and Soviet-era anti-aircraft guns while destroying their tanks, trenches and fortified positions. Despite the fact that both sides were well prepared for war, it was over this time in just 44 days, with Azerbaijan's semi-mercenary drone fleet proving decisive. This war is already having consequences for strategic salt in the rest of the world, with reports that countries like the UK are planning to massively expand their drone fleet while reducing the number of actual infantry troops. It's not easy to see why, with the conflict being described by some as an insight into the future of warfare. While strategy in the 17 and 1800s was defined by sea power, the 20th century saw the emergence of air power as a dominant strategic consideration. However, Air power is incredibly expensive to maintain and project, requiring money and a friendly foreign base, or more accurately, hundreds of friendly foreign bases. What the newfound cheapness of armed drones does is provide mid-range powers the ability to quickly build up and deploy a large number of offensive aerial weapons. In some sense, it makes interstate war affordable again. Another interesting takeaway is the fact that foreign operators were used, something which is also true of the Saudi Air Force, which relies on foreign expertise to operate. While there's been a lot of focus on the re-emergence of mercenaries in the form of private military companies like Blackwater, little attention has been paid to the use of seconded or private engineers and pilots helping to service air forces or bombing places like Yemen. Beyond these strategic considerations, the war in Nagorno-Karabakh also brings up from frightening possibilities about the future likelihood of conflict. Although civil war remains fairly common, war between states has been declining quite steadily since the end of World War II. The causes and consequences of this are hotly debated, with some people pointing to nuclear weapons or the Cold War and subsequent American hegemony as the cause. Other people focus on the diffusion of democracy and international cooperation. There's some truth to all of these, but one way of looking at it is that war became too deadly, too controversial and too expensive. For over 20 years, Armenia and Azerbaijan had calculated that the risks of renewing war outweighed the benefits. Drones, among other things, changed that. Whether used for killing troublesome foreigners without risking your own trips or facing legal consequences, or for fighting a previously unwinnable war, drones change the calculations. Ultimately, at the strategic and political levels, what drones do is make warfare cheaper and more palatable. Going back to the capture of US pilots during the Cold War, this has often served as a way to pursue war without risking trips, and more specifically, without risking a public backlash. Now, to some extent, that sounds pretty good. If you accept the position that war is an unavoidable part of world politics, then surely it's preferable that it's cheaper and less deadly. Putting the potential problems of AI drones aside, isn't it better than trench warfare? If every country had access to the same drones and agreed to only use them, then that might be true. But I think that ignores the fact that war always has consequences for someone. The War on Terror, for example, was sold as a light footprint, low-cost war, and to some extent they delivered on that. However, the use of drones and the efforts to keep down American troop numbers just resulted in the use of private military companies, local militias and drone kill lists, all of which had disastrous consequences for civilians and for human rights. 
The victims of Iraq aren't limited to the soldiers who died in the war, but also to the millions of people suffering across the region because of the political consequences of the war. The 2020 Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, which still isn't really solved, saw thousands of soldiers killed, hundreds of civilians, and also led to over 100,000 displaced people. Having a war which is cheaper, easier and more out of sight might be good for politicians, and maybe even for soldiers in some ways, but it doesn't necessarily make it any better for civilians, or any less destructive in the long run. It might be counterintuitive, maybe even a little ghoulish to say this, but some people have argued that war, in fact, should be hard. Neil Rennick's recent book Asymmetric Killing covers this debate in more depth. But to give my version of the argument, Leaders and generals should maybe be forced to think about the consequences of sending real people to fight and die. Politicians should be prepared to look parents in the eye and justify sending their children to war. In democracies, especially, this is supposed to be a check and balance against unnecessary violence. Drones contribute to an out-of-sight, out-of-mind approach to war, which is politically expedient but ethically disastrous. So, we've not even really got into talking about artificial intelligence and drones, but... To me, the scariest thing about them isn't really anything integral to them as a weapon, or even the way that they change combat as such. Rather, the biggest impact that drones might have is that they could change the way people and our leaders think about war, and in that sense make war or killing more likely. Anyway, um, thanks very much for listening. Um, next month we're going to have a really, really interesting interview, so I hope you'll um, come back for that. Um, otherwise, please uh, share, subscribe, and uh, get in touch. Cheers. <laughs>